The Sign of the Prancing Pony, Chapter 9 Bree was the chief village of Breeland, a small inhabited region like an island in the empty lands around a bit. Besides Bree itself, there was Straddle on the other side of the hill, Combe in a deep valley and a little further eastward, and Archard on the edge of Chetwood. Lying around Bree Hill in the villages was a small country of fields and tamed woodland, only a few miles broad. The men of Bree were brown-haired, broad and rather short, cheerful and independent. They belonged to nobody but themselves. They were more friendly and familiar with hobbits, dwarves, elves and other inhabitants of the world around them than what is usual with big people anyway. According to their own tales, they were the original inhabitants and were the descendants of the first men that ever wandered from the west of the Middle World. Few had survived the turmoils of the elder days, but when the kings returned again over the great sea, they had found the Bremen still there, and they were still there now, when the memory of the old kings had faded into the grass. In those days, no other men had settled dwellings so far west or within a hundred leagues of the Shire. But in the wild lands beyond Bree, there was mysterious wanderers. The Bree folk called them rangers, and knew nothing of their origin. They were taller and darker than the men of Bree, and were believed to have strange powers of sight and hearing, and to understand the languages of beasts and birds. They roamed at will southwards and eastwards, even as far as the Misty Mountains. But they were now few and rarely seen. When they appeared, they brought news from afar and told strange forgotten tales which were eagerly listened to. But the Bree folk didn't make, fun, uh, make friends with them. There were also many families of hobbits in Breeland, and they claimed to be the oldest settlement of hobbits in the world, one that was founded long before even the Brandywine was crossed and the Shire colonised. They lived mostly in the Staddle, though there were some in Bree itself, especially in the higher slopes of the hill above the houses of the men. The big folk and the little folk, as they called one another, were on friendly terms, minding their own affairs in their own ways, but both rightly regarding themselves as necessary parts of Bree folk. Nowhere else in the world was this particular but excellent arrangement found. The Bree folk, big and little, did not themselves travel much, and the affairs of the four villages were their chief concern. Occasionally the hobbits of Bree went as far as Buckland or East Farthing, but though their little land was not much further than the days riding east of Brandywine Bridge, the hobbits of the Shire now seldom visited it. An occasional Bucklander or adventurous took would sometimes come out to the inn for a night or two, but even that was becoming less and less usual. The Shire hobbits referred to those of Bree and to any others that lived beyond the borders as outsiders took very little interest in them, considering them dull and uncouth. There are probably many more outsiders scattered about in the west of the world in those days than the people of the Shire imagined. Some, doubtless, were no better than tramps, ready to dig a hole in any bank and stay only as long as it suited them. But in Breeland, at any rate, the hobbits were decent, prosperous, and no more rustic than any of their most distant relatives inside. It was not yet forgotten that there had been a time when there was much coming and going between she and the Shire and Bree. There was Bree blood in the brandy bucks by all accounts. The village of Bree had some hundred stones of the big folk. Sorry. The village of Bree had some hundred stone houses of the big folk, mostly above the road, nestling in the hillside with windows looking west. On that side, running in more than half a circle from the hill and back to it, there was a deep dyke with a thick hedge on the inner side. 
over this road crossed by a causeway. But where it pierced the hedge it was barred again by a great, a great gate. There was another gate in the southern corner where the road ran out of the village. The gates were closed at nightfall, but just inside them were small lodges for the gatekeepers. Down on the road where it swept to the right to go round the foot of the hill there was a large inn. It had been built long ago when the traffic on the roads had been far greater. For Bree stood an old meeting of ways, another ancient road crossing the east road just outside the dyke of the western end of the village, and in former days men and other folks of various sorts had travelled much on it. Strange as news from Bree was still the saying in the east farthing, descending from those days, when the news from the south, north and east could be heard in the inn, and when the shire hobbits used to go more often to hear it. But the northern lands had long been desolate, and the north road was now seldom used. It was grass-grown, and Bree folk called it Greenway. The inn of Bree was still there, however, and the innkeeper was an important person. His house was a meeting place for the idle, talkative and inquisitive, amongst the inhabitants large and small of the four villages, and the resort of rangers and other wanderers, and for such travellers mostly dwarves who still journeyed from the east road down and to the mountains. It was dark, and white stars were shining, when Frodo and his companions came at last to the Greenway crossing and drew near the village. They came to Westgate and found it shut, but at the door of the lodge beyond it there was a man sitting. He jumped up, and fetched a lantern and looked over the gate at them in surprise. "'What do you want, and where do you come from?' he asked gruffly. "'We are making for the inn here,' answered Frodo. "'We are journeying east and cannot further tonight.' "'Hobbits?' Four hobbits, and what's more, out of the shire by their talk, said the gatekeeper softly, as if speaking to himself. He stared at them darkly for a moment, and then slowly opened the gate and let them ride through. We don't often see shire folk riding on the road at night, he went on, as they halted a moment by his door. You'll pardon my wondering what business takes you away from Bree. What may your names be, I might ask. Our names and our business are our own. And this does not seem like a good place to discuss them anyway, said Frodo, not liking the look of the man or the tone of his voice. Your business is your own, no doubt, said the man, but it's my business to ask questions after nightfall. We are hobbits from Buckland, and we have a fancy to travel and stay here at the inn, said Mary. I am Mr. Brandybuck. Is that enough for you? The brief folk used to be fair-spoken to travellers, or so I'd heard. All right, all right, said the man. I mean no offence. But you'll find maybe that more folk than old Harry at the gate will be asking you questions tonight. There's queer folk about. If you go on to the pony, you'll find you're not the only guests. He wished them good night and then said no more. But Frodo could see in the lantern light that the man was still eyeing them curiously. He was glad to hear the gate clang behind them as they rode forward. He wondered why the man was so suspicious and whether anyone had been asking for news of a party of hobbits. Could it have been Gandalf? He might have arrived. He might have even got there while they were delayed in the forest and the downs. But there was something in the look and the voice of the gatekeeper that made him uneasy. The man stared after the hobbits for a moment, and then he went back to his house. As soon as his back was turned, a dark figure climbed quickly over the gate and melted into the shadows of the village street. The hobbits rode up a gentle slope, passing a few detached houses, and drew up outside the inn. 
The houses looked large and strange to them. Sam stared up at the inn with the three stories and many windows and felt his heart sink. He had imagined himself meeting giants taller than trees and other creatures even more terrifying, sometime or other in the course of the journey, but at the moment he was finding the sight of first men in their tall houses quite enough, indeed too much for the dark end of a tiring day. He pictured black horses standing all saddled in the shadows of the inn yard, and black riders peering out the dark upper windows. "'We surely aren't going to stay here for the night, are we, sir?' he exclaimed. "'If there are hobbit folk in these parts, why don't they look for something that would be more willing to take us in? That would be more home-like.' "'What's wrong with the inn?' said Frodo. "'Tom Bombadil recommended it. I expect it's home-like enough inside.' Even from the outside, the inn looked pleasant house to familiar eyes. It had a road on, sorry, had a front onto the road, and two wings running back on land partly cut out of the lower slopes of the hill, so that the rear and the second floor windows were level with the ground. There was a wide arch leading to the courtyard between the two wings, and on the left of the arch there was a large doorway reached up by a few broad steps. The door was open and the light streamed out of it. Above the arch there was a lamp, and beneath it swung a large signboard, a fat white pony reared up on its hind legs. Over the door was painted in white letters, The Prancing Pony, by Barlaman Butterbur. Many of the lower windows shows light, showed lights behind the thick curtains. As they hesitated outside in the gloom, someone began to sing a merry song inside, and many cheerful voices joined loudly in the chorus. They listened to this encouraging sound for a moment and then got off their ponies. The song ended and there was a burst of laughter and clapping. They led their ponies under the arch and leaving them standing in the yard, they climbed up onto the steps. Frodo went forward and nearly bumped into a short fat man with a bald head and a red face. He had a white apron on and was bustling out of one of the doors through the, one through the other, carrying a tray laden with full mugs. Can we? began Frodo. Half a minute, if you please, shouted the man over his shoulder, and vanished into a babble of voices and cloud and smoke. In a moment he was out again, wiping his hands on his apron. Good evening, little master, he said, bending down. What may you be wanting? Beds for four, and the stabling for five ponies, if that can be managed. Are you Mr. Butterbur? That's right, Barlaman is my name, Barlaman Butterbur, at your service. You're from the Shire, eh? he said. And suddenly he clapped his hands to his forehead as if trying to remember something. Hobbits! he cried. Now what does that remind me of? Might I ask your name, sir? Mr. Took and Mr. Brandybuck, said Mr. Frodo. And this is Sam Ganji, and my name is Underhill. There now, said Mr. Butterbur, snapping his fingers. It's gone again. But it'll come back when I have time to think. I'm run off my feet, but I'll see what I can do for you. We don't often get a party out of the Shire nowadays, and I should be sorry not to make you welcome. There's such a crowd already in the house, as hasn't been, as it hasn't been for nearly long enough. It never rains, but it pours. We say in Bree. Hi, Nob! He shouted. Where are you, you woolly-footed old coach, Nob? Coming, sir. Coming. A cheery-looking hobbit bobbed out of the door, and seeing the travellers, stopped short and stared at them with great interest. Where's Bob? Asked the landlord. You don't know. We'll find him. Double sharp. I haven't got six legs nor six eyes either. Tell Bob that it's five ponies that need to be stabled. And he must find a room somehow. Nob trotted off with a grin and a wink. 
Well, now, what was I going to say, said Mr. Butterbear, tapping his forehead. One thing dries out another, so to speak. I'm that busy tonight, my head is going round. There's a party that came up from Greenway from down south last night. It was strange enough to begin with. Then there's a travelling company of dwarves going west in this evening, and now there's you. If you weren't hobbits, I doubt if we could house you, but we've got room or two in the north wing that were made special for hobbits when this place was built. On the ground floor, as they usually prefer, round windows and all that's there like it. I hope you'll be comfortable. You'll be wanting supper, I don't doubt, as soon as it may be. This way now. He led them a short way down the passage and opened a door. Here is a nice little parlour, he said. I hope it will suit. Excuse me now, I'm that busy, no time for talking, I must be trodden. It's hard work for two legs, but I don't get any thinner. I'll look again later. If you want anything, ring that handbell, and Nob will come. If you don't come, come ring and shout. Off he went at last, and left him feeling rather breathless. He seemed capable of an endless stream of talk, however busy he might be. They found themselves in a small and cosy room. There was a bit of a bright fire burning on the hearth, and in front of them there were some low and comfortable chairs. There was a round table, already spread with a white cloth, and on it a large handbell. But Nob, the hobbit servant, came bustling in long before they even thought of ringing him. He brought candles and a tray full of plates. "'Will you be wanting anything to drink, masters?' he said. "'And shall I show you the bedrooms while your supper's getting ready?' They were washed in the middle of a good deep mugs of beer when Mr. Butterbur and Nob came in again. In a twinkling, the table was laid. There was hot soup, cold meats, blackberry tart, new loaves, slabs of butter, and a half-ripe cheese. Good plain food, as good as the shire, and home-like enough to dispel the last of Sam's misgiving. Already he was much relieved by the excellence of the beer. The landlord hovered around for a while, and then proposed to leave them. "'I don't know whether you would care to join the company.' When you have supped, he said. Perhaps you'd rather go to your beds. Still, the company would be very pleased to welcome you if you had a mind. We don't get outsiders, that is, travellers from the Shire, I should say, begging your pardon. We don't get them often, and we like to hear a bit of news or story or song or anything you have in mind. But as you please, ring the bell if you lack anything. So refreshed and encouraged did they feel at the end of their supper, about three quarters of an hour steady going, not hindered by unnecessary talk that Frodo, Pippin and Sam decided to join the company. Mary said it would be too stuffy. I shall sit here quietly by the fire for a bit and perhaps go out later for a sniff of the air. Wind your P's and Q's and don't forget that you're supposed to be escaping a secret and still on the high road not very far from the Shire. All right, said Pippin. Mind yourself. Don't get lost and don't forget that it's safer indoors. The company was in the big common room of the inn. The gathering was large and mixed, as Frodo discovered when his eyes got used to the light. This came chiefly from a blazing log fire, for the three lamps hanging from the beams were dim and half-veiled in smoke. Barleyman and Butterbur were standing near the fire, talking to a couple of dwarves and one or two strange-looking men. On the benches were various folk, men of Bree, a collection of local hobbits, sitting chattering together, a few more dwarves and other vague figures difficult to make out away in the shadows in the corners. As soon as the Shire Hobbits entered, there was a chorus of welcome from the Breelanders. The strangers, especially those that come up the Greenway, stared at them curiously. The landlord introduced the newcomers to the Bree folk so quickly that, though they caught many names, they were seldom sure who the names actually belonged to. The men of Bree seemed all to have rather botanical, and to the Shire folk rather odd names, like Rushlight, Goatleaf, 
Heathertoes, Appledore, Thistlewall and Fernie, not to mention Butterbur. Some of the hobbits had similar names. The Mugwarts, for example, seemed numerous. But most of them had natural names such as Bank, Brockhouse, Longhole, Sandheaver and Tunley, many of which were also used in the Shire. There were several underhills from Staddle, and as they could not imagine sharing a name without being related, they, looked Frodo to, they took Frodo to their hearts as a long-lost cousin. The Bree Hobbits were in fact friendly and inquisitive, and Frodo soon found himself some explanation of what he was doing that would have to be given. Sorry, Frodo soon found that some explanation of what he was doing would have to be given. He gave out that he was interested in history and geography, at which there was much wagging of heads, although neither of these words were much used in Bree dialect. And he was thinking of writing a book, at which there was silent astonishment, and that he and his friends were wanted to collect information about hobbits living outside the Shire, particularly in the eastern lands. At this a chorus of voices broke out. If Frodo had really wanted to write a book there, and had many ears, he would have learnt enough of several chapters just in a few minutes. And if that was not enough, he was given a whole list of names, beginning with old Barleyman there, to whom he could go for more information. But after a time, as Frodo did not show any sign of writing a book on the spot, the hobbits returned to their questions about doings in the Shire. Frodo did not prove very communicative, and he soon found himself sitting alone in a corner, listening and looking around. The men and dwarves were mostly talking of distant events and telling news of a kind that were becoming only too familiar. There was trouble away in the south, and it seemed that the men had come up the greenway, were on the move, looking for lands where they could find some peace. The Bree folk were sympathetic, but plainly not ready to take a large number of strangers into their little land. One of the travellers, a squint-eyed, ill-favoured fellow, was foretelling that more and more people would be coming north in their future. If room isn't found for them, they'll find it for themselves. They have a right to live, same as other folk. The local inhabitants did not be pleased at that prospect, however. The hobbits did not pay much attention to all this, and it did not at the moment seem to concern hobbits. Big folk could hardly beg for lodgings and hobbit holes. They were more interested in Sam and Pippin, who were now feeling quite at home, and were chatting gaily about events in the Shire. Pippin roused a good deal of laughter with an account of the collapse of the roof of the town hall at Michael Delving, Wilful Foot the mare and the fattest hobbit in the Westfarling had been buried in chalk and came out looking like a flowered dumpling. But there were several questions asked that made Frodo a little uneasy. One of the Brelanders, who seemed to have been in the Shire several times, wanted to know where the Underhills lived and who they were related to. Suddenly Frodo noticed that a strange-looking, weather-beaten man sitting in the shadows near the wall was also listening intently to the Hobbit talk. He had a tall tankard in front of him, and was smoking a long-stemmed pipe, curiously carved. His legs were stretched out before him, showing high boots of supple leather that fit him well, but had seen much wear and now caked in mud. A travel-stained cloak of heavy dark green cloth was drawn about him, and in spite of the heat of the room he wore a hood that overshadowed his face, but the gleam of his eyes could be seen as he watched the hobbits. "'Who is that?' Frodo asked, when he got the chance to whisper to Mr. Butterbar. "'I don't think you introduced him.' "'Him?' said the landlord. Um, "'I don't think I rightly know. He's one of the wandering folk. Rangers, we call them. He seldom talks.' But what we can tell, not what we can tell a rare tale when he has a, ugh. he seldom talks, but not what he can tell a rare tale when he has a mind. I think that means when he tells the story, 
It's a good one. He disappears for a month or a year and then pops up again. He was in and out pretty often last spring, but I haven't seen him about lately. What his right name is, I've never heard, but he's known around here as Strider. Goes about at a great pace in his long shanks. Though we don't tell nobody what cause he has to hurry. There's no accounting for east or west, as we say in Bree, meaning the rangers and the shire folk, begging your pardon. Funny you should ask about him. But at that moment, Mr. Butterwell was called away by a demand for more ale, and his last remark remained unexplained. Frodo found that Strider was now looking at him, as if he had heard or guessed what had been said. Presently, with a wave of his hand and a nod, he invited Frodo to come over and sit by him. As Frodo drew near, he threw back his hood, showing a shaggy head of dark hair flecked with grey, and a pale, stern face, a pair of keen grey eyes. I am called Strider, he said in a low voice. I am very pleased to meet you, Mr. Underhill, if old Butterbar got your name right. He did, said Frodo stiffly. He felt far from comfortable under the stare of those keen eyes. Well, Mr. Underhill, said Strider, if I were you, I should stop your young friends from talking too much. Drink, fire, and chance meeting are pleasant enough, but, well, this isn't the Shire. There are many queer folk around. Though I say it as shouldn't, you may think. He added with a wry smile, seeing Frodo's glance. And there have been even strange of travellers through Bree lately, he went on, watching Frodo's face. Frodo returned his gaze but said nothing, and Strider made no further sign. His attention seemed suddenly to be fixed on Pippin. To his alarm, Frodo became aware that the ridiculous lung took, encouraged by success with the fat mare of Muckle Delving, was now actually giving a comic account of Bilbo's farewell party. He was already giving an imitation of the speech and was drawn near to the astonishing disappearance. Frodo was annoyed. It was a harmless enough tale for most of the local hobbits, no doubt. Just a funny story about those funny people beyond the river. But some, old Butterbar, for instance, knew a thing or two and had probably heard rumours long ago about Bilbo's vanishing. It would bring the name of Baggins to their mind, especially if there had been inquiries and bring after that name. Frodo fidgeted, wondering what to do. Pippin was evidently much enjoying the attention he was getting and had become quite forgetful of their danger. Frodo had a sudden fear that in his present mood he might even mention the ring, and that would be disastrous. You'd better do something quick, whispered Strider in his ear. Frodo jumped up and stood on the table and began to talk. The attention of Pippin's audience was disturbed. Some of the hobbits looked at Frodo and laughed and clapped, thinking that Mr. Underhill had taken as much ale as it was too good for him. Frodo suddenly felt very foolish and found himself, as was his habit, making a speech, fingering the things in his pocket. He felt the ring on its change, and quite unaccountably the desire came over him to slip it on and vanish out of the situation. It seemed to him, somehow, as if the suggestion came to him from outside, something or someone in the room. He resisted the temptation firmly and clasped the ring in his hand, as if to keep hold on it and prevent it from escaping or doing anything mischievous. At any rate, it gave him no inspiration. He spoke a few suitable words as they would have it said in the Shire. We are all very much gratified by the kindness of your reception, and I venture to hope that my brief visit will help renew the old ties of friendship between Shire and Bree. And then he hesitated and coughed. Everyone in the room was now looking at him. A song! shouted one of the hobbits. A song! A song! Come on now, master, sing us something that we haven't heard before. 
For a moment Frodo stood gaping. Then in desperation he began a ridiculous song that Bilbo had been rather fond of, and even been rather proud of, for he had made up the words himself. It was about an inn, and it's probably why it came to mind for Frodo just then. Here it is, in full. Only a few words of it are now, as a rule, remembered. There is an inn, a merry old inn, beneath an old grey hill, and there they brew a beer so brown that the man in the moon himself came down at night to drink his fill. The ostler has a tipsy cat that plays a five-string fiddle, and up and down he runs his bow, now squeaking high, now purring low, now soaring in the middle. The landlord keeps a little dog that is mighty fond of jokes, and when there's good cheer amongst the guests, he cocks an ear at all the jests and laughs until he chokes. And also keep a horned cow as proud as any queen. But music turns her head like ale and makes her wave her tufted tail and dance upon the green. And oh, the rolls of silver dishes and the store of silver spoons. For Sunday there is a special pair in the roller shop with care on Sunday afternoons. The man in the moon was drinking deep, and the cat began to wail. The dish and the spoon on the table danced in the cows, and the garden madly pranced, and the dog with a wail his tail. Eh, the little dog chased his tail. The man in the moon took another mug and rolled beneath his chair, and there he dozed and dreamed of ale till in the skies the stars were pale and the dawn was in the air. And the ostler said to his tipsy cat, the white horses of the moon, they neigh and champ their silver bits where the master's been and the drowned's wits and the sun will be rising soon. So the cat and his fiddle played hay to drill and a jig would wake the dead. He squeaked and soared and quickened the tune while the landlord shook and the man in the moon it's after three he said. They rolled the man slowly up the hill and bundled to the moon while his horses galloped up in the rear and the cow came capering like a deer and the dish ran up with a spoon. Now quicker the fiddle went diddly-dum, then the dog began to roar. The cow and the horses stood on their heads, and the guests all bound upon their beds and danced upon the floor. With the ping and a pong, and the fiddle string broke, and the cow jumped over the moon. And a little dog laughed to see such fun, and the Saturday dish went off at a run with a silver Sunday spoon. The round moon rolled behind the hill, and the sun raised up her head. She hardly believed her fiery eyes over what was day. To her surprise, they all went back to bed. There was a loud and long applause. Frodo had a good voice, and the song tickled their fancy. Where's old Barley? they cried. He ought to hear this. Bob ought to learn about the cat and the fiddle, and would have a dance. They called for more ale and began to shout. Let's have it again, master. Come on, once more. They made Frodo have another drink, and they began the song again and many of them joined in, for the tune was well known, and they were quick at picking up the words. Now Frodo's turn to feel pleased with himself. He capered about on the table. When he came to the second time the cow jumped over the moon, he leaped into the air, much too vigorously, for he came down bang into a tray full of mugs and slipped and rolled off the table with a crash clatter and a bump. The audience all gaped their mouths open and wide for laughter, and then stopped short in silence, for the singer had disappeared. He had just simply vanished as if he had gone slapped through the floor without leaving a hole. The local hobbits stared in amazement and sprang to their feet and shouted for the barleyman. All the company drew away from Pippin and Sam, who found themselves left alone in the corner, and eyed darkly and doubtfully in the distance. It was plain that many people regarded them now as companions of a travelling magician of unknown powers and purpose. 
But there's one swarthy breedlander who stood looking at them with a knowing and half-mocking expression that made them feel very uncomfortable. Presently he slipped out of the door, followed by a squint-eyed southerner. The two had been whispering together a good deal throughout the evening. Harry the gatekeeper also went out just behind them. Frodo felt a fool. Not knowing what else to do, he crawled away under the table into the dark corner by Strato, who sat unmoved, giving no sign of his thoughts. Frodo leaned back against the wall and took off the ring. How it came to be on his finger, he could not tell. He only supposed that he had been handling in his pocket while he sang, and somehow it had slipped on when he snuck out. When he stuck out his hand with a jerk to save his fall. For a moment he wondered if the ring itself had not played a trick. Perhaps it had tried to reveal itself in response to some wish or command that felt in the room. He did not like the looks of the men that had gone out. Well, said Strider when he reappeared, why did you do that? Worse than anything your friends could have said, you could have put your foot in it. Or should I say, your finger? I don't know what you mean, said Frodo, annoyed and alarmed. Oh, yes you do, answered Strider. But we better wait until the uproar has died down. Then, if you please, Mr. Baggins, I should like a quiet word with you. What about, asked Frodo, so ignoring the sudden use of his proper name. A matter of some importance to us both, answered Strider, looking Frodo in the eye. You may hear something to your advantage. Very well, said Frodo, trying to appear unconcerned. I'll talk to you later. Meanwhile, an argument was going on by the fireplace. Mr. Butterbur had come strolling in, was now trying to listen to several conflicting accounts of the event at the same time. I saw him, Mr. Butterbur, said Hobbit, or leastways I didn't see him, if you take my meaning. He just vanished, in a manner of speaking. You don't say, Mr. Mugwort, said the landlord, looking puzzled. Yes, I do, replied Mugwort, and I mean what I say, what's more. There's some mistake somewhere, said Mr. Butterbur. Shaking his head, there's too much of that Mr. Underhill to go vanishing into thin air, or into thick air, is more likely in this room. Well, where is he now? cried several voices. How should I know? He's welcome to go where he will, as long as he pays in the morning. There's Mr. Took now. He's not vanished. Well, I saw what I saw, and I saw what I didn't, said Mr. Mugwort obstinately. And I say there's some mistake, repeated Butterbur, repeating, uh, picking up the tray and gathering up the broken crockery. Of course there's a mistake, said Frodo. I haven't vanished. Here I am. I've just been having a few words with Strider in the corner. He came forward into the firelight, but most of the company backed away, even more perturbed than before. They were not in the least bit satisfied with his explanation that he had crawled away quickly under the tables after he had fallen. Most of the hobbits and the men of Bree went off then and then there in a huff, having no fancy for further entertainment that evening. One or two gave Frodo a black look and departed muttering amongst themselves. The dwarves and two or three of the strange men that still remained got up and said good night to the landlord, but not to Frodo and his friends. Before long, no one was left but Strider, who sat on, unnoticed by the wall. Mr. Butterbur didn't seem too put out. He reckoned very probably that his house would be full again on many future nights until the present mystery had been thoroughly discussed. Now, what have you been doing, Mr. Underhall, he said, frightening my customers and breaking my crockery with your acrobatics? I'm very sorry to have caused you any trouble, said Frodo. It was quite unintentional, I assure you, a most unfortunate accident. It's all right, Mr. Underhill, but if you're going to do any more tumbling or conjuring or whatever it was, you'd best warn folk beforehand, and warn me. We're a bit suspicious around here of anything out of the way, uncanny if you understand me. We don't take to it all of a sudden. 
I shan't be doing anything of the sort again, Mr. Butterbur, I promise you. And now I think I'll begin to bed. We shall be making an early start. Will you see that our ponies are ready by eight o'clock? Very good, but before you go, I would like a word with you in private, Mr. Underhill. Something has just come back to my mind that I ought to tell you. I hope you're not taken amiss. When I've seen a thing or two, I'll come along to your room, if you're willing. Certainly, said Frodo, but his heart sank. He wondered how many private talks he'd have to have before he got to bed, and what they would reveal. Were these people all in league against him? He began to suspect that even old Butterbo's fat face was concealing heart and dark designs. <laughs>